did the Apostle Paul remind the church of Colossae that it was Christ in them, and that is the hope of glory. It's all about Jesus. <laughs> it's all about Jesus. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts, the 20th chapter of that book, Acts chapter 20, the 17th verse of that chapter, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 20, the 17th verse. The Bible says, and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how it was with you, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Spirit, Holy Spirit, solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to, testi to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up 
and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or, or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this day for your word. We pray as we now turn to Holy Scripture that you would speak to your church today. As we install these new men in ministry as elders of our church, we pray that you would speak to all the leaders of our fellowship through this charge that Paul gives to the elders. Challenge us, Lord God, to serve this flock well to be diligent and faithful to the ministry to which you've called us. Help us to execute our responsibilities with excellence. We pray to God you would teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we have the opportunity to install a new group of men into the office of elder here at Berean. Eldership was not something with which Berean was always familiar. Although this is, this is what many of you know and have only known, if you were here at our church before 2001, you know that Berean did not always, was not always an elder-ruled church. The transition has been difficult and it has had its challenges. But we've been blessed by God with a solid group of men to lead this fellowship. Even though we have many more elders than most churches our size, because of the centrality of elders to the discipleship process we've implemented here at our church, we needed to add additional men to our already well-established and staffed elder board. Having gone through the challenging training process, we now come to the public installation service. With this in mind, I would like us to fast forward in our present study of the book of Acts to Acts chapter 20. Right now we're in Acts chapter 14, but I want to jump ahead a few chapters to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. This chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 20, took place at the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey. We're presently studying the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Well, as Paul was closing out his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18, he had made a stop at the city of Ephesus. And while he did not, he did not stay in Ephesus, he did preach one message there. He promised them in, in Acts 18 verses 18 through 21 that if God willed, he would stop there at a future time. After, after he returned back to the sending church, which was Antioch, 
Paul pushed out on his third missionary journey. So there are three missionary journeys in the book of Acts. We're studying the first one. At the end of the second one is when he first arrives in Ephesus. And then in the, the begin, beginning of the third missionary journey starts in Acts chapter 18, verse 21. There's no specific reason given for this third missionary journey. However, Luke's description of Paul's strengthening of the, of the, of the, uh, of the brethren at the conclusion of Acts chapter 18 seems to indicate that Paul had the intentions of strengthening those people who had committed their life to Christ during his second missionary journey. The focus of this third journey would be the city of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. When Paul finally arrived in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, he found a small group of disciples already there. He took those disciples and he instructed them more, more faithfully, more clearly in the, in the word of God. He gave them a greater understanding of what Christianity was. And a church started there, a rather dynamic church. In fact, Paul would spend almost three years, really about three years in Ephesus. And the Bible says that through his ministry in Ephesus, all of Asia Minor, the whole entire region heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So powerful was the ministry, so, so per, pervasive was the ministry that the silversmiths who, who lived off of idle trinket, the idle trinket trade began to experience a lull in business. Such a lull that at the end of Acts chapter 19, there's a riot against the church. I can't believe that, a, that the church would so change a city that they would literally put people out of business because people were no longer buying idols. The gospel can change people's lives. Praise God. Paul left Ephesus at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, and his intention was to go to Macedonia, which he did. He ministered there for, for a while. After Macedonia, he then made his way to, to Greece, and once he arrived in Greece, he stayed there for three months. His desire, however, was to, to go to Syria, as Acts chapter 20, verse 3 says, because he eventually wanted to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. As Paul was preparing to leave, however, a plot was discovered, and Paul had to reroute himself, and he had to sail to Syria. Uh, sorry, rather than sailing to Syria, he instead went by land to Philippi. And then he sailed across the, the, the Aegean Sea to a city called Troas in Asia Minor. Of course, Asia Minor, you know, to be modern-day Turkey. And so Paul, when he wrote, when he arrived in Troas, was in, a, was in a quandary. He didn't know what to do. He was in Asia Minor. Ephesus was in Asia Minor. He had spent three years in Ephesus. He didn't want to just sail by Ephesus and not say something. But he wanted to arrive in Jerusalem on time for the feast. So he was struggling. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 16. Acts chapter 20, verse 16. Listen, listen to Paul's quandary here. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. 
So Paul was in Asia Minor. He didn't want to, he didn't want to skip Ephesus, but he knew if he went to Ephesus, he wasn't going to make it to Jerusalem. And there were too many relationships, too many, too many good things that happened in, Asia, in, in, in Ephesus. And he knew that if he went to the church, the church would make him stay there longer than he, than he could. So Paul had a plan. Paul decided to sail past Ephesus and then stop in, this, in the harbor city of Miletus. And what he would do is he would, he would then send a messenger 40 miles north to Ephesus and ask the elders to come back to him, come down to him, and he would address them. Look at Acts 20, verse 17. And from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. When the elders arrived, Paul gave them a farewell message. This message can be divided into three parts. The first part was, was verses 18 through 21, in which Paul reviewed his past ministry among them. Then verses 22 through 27, in that text, he looked at his present situation and his resolve. That's verse 22 in through 27. And then beginning in verse 28 through verse 35, Paul concluded with the duties and responsibilities of the elders of the church. And that's what I want to focus on this morning, verses 28 through verse 35. However, before we do that, I can't just skip what comes before. You see, in, in looking at his, his own ministry, Paul gives us as elders a better perspective on what we should be focused on. As we look at Paul's life and Paul's ministry, we can get a sense of what our ministry and our life should be like. So let's, let's, not, skip, let's not skip these introductory verses, verses 18 through verse 21. Let's look at those quickly. First off, verses 18 through 21, Paul reviewed, he reviewed his past ministry. There are 10 principles here in verses 18 through 21 I want to draw your attention to. Look at how he begins, verse 18. And, and when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. The first principle we see here is that properly executed Christian ministry is evident to and can be affirmed by others. Say it again. Properly executed Christian ministry is evident to and can be affirmed by others. You know it when you see it, is the point. And Paul indicated to the Ephesians that the Ephesians were well aware, they were well aware of how he conducted himself in Christian ministry. Elders, the congregation are watching you to see how you minister and how you serve. The proof is in the pudding. There's a second principle here in this verse, verse 18, and that is that properly executed Christian ministry encompasses the whole and not just the parts, which means by implication that faithfulness, faithfulness over the long term is as important as individual successes. I often told my wife before she passed that we can't look at our life by snapshots. We have to look at the whole picture. 
if you look at a snapshot, you might get a, a wrong opinion of yourself or the circumstances. We parent and we live for the whole and not for the parts. Christian ministry is faithfulness, not just in the individual moments of ministry, but in the whole scope of what we do. Verse 19 continues Paul's description of his past ministry. How did he, how did he minister in Ephesus? Look what he says in verse 19, serving the Lord. How? With all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. There's a third principle here. Notice he said serving the Lord. The term serving is the Greek term that described what slaves did for their masters. <laughs> Paul used that to describe Christian ministry. What does this tell us? It tells us that properly executed Christian ministry is a duty. It's a duty. Uh, although the elders are our leaders, the elders are really slaves of Jesus. They're slaves of Jesus. They serve him. He's their master. There's more here in this statement, though. We also see that the properly executed Christian ministry is marked by humility. That is a lowliness of mind that places God and others above oneself. Humility is missing in, in, many, in many people's ministries today. A leader is called to humility. It's humble service. Does that define you? We also see that properly executed Christian ministry is marked by tears. That is, a godly sorrow over faults or inadequate beliefs regarding God, over the condition of the lost, and over the sin of God's people. All things over which Paul himself sorrowed. Paul sorrowed over those things. And those who lead God's church also sorrow over those same things. What else do we see in this verse? We see that properly executed Christian ministry is marked by trials in that it will, it will be resisted by the kingdom of Satan. Ministry is not easy. Serving isn't easy. There will be difficulties in your service, challenges, but you serve anyway. Paul continued using himself as an example to the elders in verse 20 of chapter 20. Notice what verse 20 says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything, anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. What do we see in this verse? The first thing we see is that properly executed ministry does not cower or shrink back before opposition, but faithfully follows through in spite of opposition to it. Paul said, I didn't shrink from it. I didn't back off. There's a courage that you have to have to do ministry properly and effectively. 
the modern church needs more courageous people in it. People who grow a spine. Paul said, I didn't shrink. What else do we see here? Properly executed ministry is focused primarily upon the teaching of the Word of God in all and every opportunity. Let me stop here for just a moment. Notice what Paul said here. He said that he, he didn't stop from communicating that which was profitable, that which was profitable. There are some Christians who believe that there are certain doctrines that are mentioned or taught in the Bible that should be hid from public inspection. I remember well some believers that came up to me when I first came to Berean and was preaching on and teaching on Ephesians. They told me while the, the doctrine of election is in the Bible, I shouldn't, I shouldn't teach it publicly. It makes Christians not evangelize, and it will be a force of destruction to the church. So let me get it straight. Don't preach something that's in the Bible. I hadn't heard that one before. We don't believe that you shouldn't proclaim or teach publicly what God has declared in his Bible to be the case. When Paul said that he didn't, he didn't, he, that, 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 that he didn't shrink from declaring anything that was profitable, he, didn't, he wasn't saying that he only chose things that people liked to hear. Paul's statement in this text was just another way of saying that he, that he declared to them the whole counsel of God. Look at verse 27 of Acts 20. He said, for I did not shrink, same, same statement, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God. Not some of what God says, all of it. Church, we believe that all the Bible is profitable. Did you hear me? Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, he said, all scripture is inspired by God, and because of that, it is profitable, what for? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Notice, not some of the Bible, not a portion of the Bible, not the parts you like or that support your beliefs, rather all of the Bible is profitable for the believer's life. Saints, be very careful of those who wish to hide certain doctrines of the faith, to hide certain passages of Scripture because they've deemed them unworthy or dangerous to be taught to God's people. Such individuals view themselves as more important and more authoritative than God himself. This is why we believe here at Berean in expository preaching that is word by word, verse by verse, explanation and application of the text of Scripture. It keeps you from editing out what you don't like. <laughs> That's right, brother. 
Paul said, we didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Let's continue. As we think about this verse, uh, there's another principle here. Properly executed Christian ministry contains both a public ministry and an intimate ministry to individuals and families. Paul said he, he taught not just publicly, but also house to house. The Bible knows no boundaries as to its influence and its, determinative, and its determinativeness. Paul concludes his look back at the past of his ministry in verse 21. Look at what that verse says. What did Paul do? Verse 21, solemnly, he says, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is yet another point regarding what we, we got to stop for just a moment and, and, and really savor what Paul is saying here. There's some debate nowadays in the church regarding the proclamation of the gospel. Does, does the gospel include repentance or, or, or do we just call people to faith? Do we, do we call people to Jesus as Lord and Savior or just as Savior? Do we, do we make Jesus Lord later in our lives after we become a believer and years later make him, make him Lord of our life then? Some people argue 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't call for repentance. It's not, it doesn't list it as a part of the gospel. So we shouldn't preach repentance when we preach the gospel. Well, what does Paul say? <laughs> Paul said that I, I solemnly testified to who? Both Jews and Greeks. It didn't matter what your ethnicity was. There's not a, there's, there's not a separate gospel based upon what your ethnic background is. But Paul said Jews and Greeks got the same message. And what was that message? Repentance and faith. They go hand in hand. Paul made it clear that his gospel included both repentance and faith. What this tells us is that some people are preaching only half of the gospel. Yes, they proclaim faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, yet they don't speak at all about repentance towards God. You can't have, you can't have the one without the other. Churches are full of people who have had, who said they believe in Jesus, but they've yet to repent. You see, saints, faith indicates where you are saved to, while repentance indicates where you are saved from. Amen. One commentator rightly described repentance when he wrote this, and I quote, 19th century theologian Heinrich Hype defined re repentance as a gracious power bestowed only on the elect by which they lay aside the life of sin and busy themselves with righteousness. <laughs> Let me say it again. A, a, a gracious power bestowed only on the elect by which they lay aside the life of sin and busy themselves with righteousness. 
He goes on to say this. Remorse, such as that experienced by Judas, Matthew 27, verse 3, or Saul, 1 Timothy, sorry, 1 Samuel 15, 24 through 25, must not be confused with repentance. Repentance involves sorrow for the act of sin, remorse, sorrow for its consequences. A repentant person is sorry he sinned, whereas a remorseful person is sorry he got caught, end quote. We have many people in the church today remorseful they got caught, but they have yet to repent from their sin. So they're unconverted. True repentance. Sorrows over remaining sin. Whether you're caught or not, Do you sorrow over your sinfulness? Does that describe you? Or are you, or you just sorry somebody found out about it? True believers sorrow over remaining sin. Repentance, while it is a change of mind, about your sin, it's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. It's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. As used by the New Testament, it is a human act produced solely and completely by the Holy Spirit based on grace in which a person turns from sin to God. Once turned, faith, also like repentance, a gift from God, is exercised towards Jesus Christ and the sinner is saved. Faith realizes mentally its object and understands who, who, who he is, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Faith relents emotionally to its object as master and sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ. And faith rests voluntarily in trust in its object, Jesus Christ, the exclusive way of salvation. Faith realizes, faith relents, and faith rests after Repentance turns. What might, we, what might we learn from this regarding Christian ministry? Well, properly executed Christian ministry defends and proclaims the complete gospel of God, both repentance and faith. Both repentance and faith. That concludes Paul's review of his past ministry in Ephesus. How, how did he minister them? There's, there's much for us to learn from, from how Paul ministered in Ephesus. And Paul then in verses 22 through 27 turns to his present situation, his present situation and his resolve in that situation. We get some insight here into the, in the challenges of Paul's that Paul faced. Back in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was first converted, Jesus gave a vision to a man named Ananias. Because 
God wanted Ananias to go to Paul who was blind and lay his hands on him so that he would receive his sight and be saved. So Ananias said, Jesus, I don't want to go because Paul, Paul is a murderer. I mean, Paul has been sent to the city to arrest people like me. Can you send someone else? And listen to how Jesus described Paul in Acts 9, verses 15 through 16. This sets up his statement here. It says, But the Lord said to him, Go. Why? For he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Watch this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Uh, as a pastor, so often I've heard Christians say, well, if I just knew of the, the trials, it would make him easier. <laughs> I don't think so. Paul knew of his trials. God, God told him, I'm going to whoop up on you. And what did he do? He didn't turn his back. He went towards the trial. I don't know if that'd be true of us. What does Paul say in Acts 20? In Acts 20, verses 22 through 23, listen to what he says. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Paul said, I, I know what's coming. What's coming is what always happens to me. Although he wasn't aware of, this, of the specifics yet, he knew what he would face. In fact, in Acts 21, verses 10 through 11, the prophet Agabus tells him exactly what's going to happen to him. Yet Paul goes anyway. What was his response? Look at verse 24. How would, how would he respond? What would he do based on this? Verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Wow. Why, Paul? In order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul said, what's my life? What's my life? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't count this life as dear. Who am I? Wow. Next, look at the next verse. Here we see his impressions regarding the Ephesians. He says, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I, I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Here we see why he so wanted to talk to the Ephesian elders. This would be the last time. He said, he said I believe I'm not going to see you again. And then look how he followed this. He followed this in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why could he say that? Innocent of all the blood of men? I mean, he always witnessed when he should have. He always, well, look what he says, verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. 
The people of Asia Minor were guilty not because they did not know the truth, but rather because of their decision to reject the truth. Their destiny was in their own hands. Paul said, I gave them all they needed to have. So having reviewed his past ministry and his present situation, Paul will now give the elders of Ephesus a charge. This group of men served as the key leadership team for the church of, of Ephesus. And Paul wanted them to be aware of, of the task for which they had been called by God. And no doubt he had informed them of these things in the past, but, but here he wants to focus on some familiar issues, these familiar issues of Christian leadership. Christian leadership. The charge begins in, verses, in verse 28. Now I can actually begin to preach my sermon. That was introduction. So in verses 28 through 35, Paul charged the elders with their duties and their responsibility. Look at how he starts this, this section of his sermon. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased, which he purchased with his own blood. Saints, I cannot overemphasize to you how important leadership is to the church. The pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, where Paul deals with the church and its makeup, a large portion of those books describe or focus on the issue of leadership. Leadership. Proper leadership is essential to a healthy church. It's also clear that this leadership is centered in the elders of the congregation. Paul described to both Timothy and Titus who these elders were to be in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, and Titus chapter 1. He also made it clear that these elders were also called overseers and pastors of the congregation. This is important, church. What is an elder? An elder is just a pastor. What's a pastor? A pastor is just a bishop. Don't get fooled by people who call themselves bishop. Bishop simply means pastor. I know that people put different tags on it as if, well, you're a pastor, but I'm a bishop. No, 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 no. They're all the same in the Bible. An elder is a bishop, is a pastor. A pastor is a bishop, is an elder. They're all the same thing. That will become clear from this text. This, this text ought to clear it up in your mind. The first thing we see here in this section is, is that the mark of the elders begins with a commitment to personal holiness. A commitment to personal holiness. Notice how he starts. He says, be on guard for yourselves. Before he ever gets to their duty in the church, he first deals with their duty towards themselves. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. An effective elder is first and foremost a believer who has committed himself to pursue a life of personal godliness before God. 
The term guard meant to devote yourself to a thing, to be occupied with it, to take care to do it. Spiritually effective ministry will not be able to take place unless it is executed by someone who is concerned first about how he's living before God. Christian ministry, church, is not just based on knowledge, organization, and how you appear to others in public. First and foremost, it's based on the leader's personal life before God. Now, how does a leader see to it that he is authentic and not just a put-on? How does he do that? I want to offer three things a leader can do. First, it demands a life of self-examination. Notice, I said self-examination, not (laughs) self-occupation. Self-examination is the sifting of one's motives, secret thoughts, and secret ambitions through the sieve of Jesus Christ and his word. You see, these are the things that people don't see, but God sees, and they reveal the truth about who we are. This is what Paul told Timothy. Notice, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul wrote these words. He said, pay close, pay close, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The first thing Paul says is not not to persevere in your teaching, but to persevere in yourself. Pay attention to yourself. Mm. (laughs) If all you want to do is tell people what they're supposed to do. You're not fit for leadership. If your highest goal is to get somebody else straight, but not deal with yourself, you're not ready for leadership. (laughs) Pay attention to yourself and your teaching. Yourself and your teaching. A leader who's only concerned about sound doctrine and not sound living is not a good leader. Bottom line. But self-examination is not the only necessary requisite. Once examination has taken place, a true spiritual leader will respond to that which the self-examination reveals by adjusting his life to align itself in greater ways with the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. He, he, he reorients himself. One of the texts that I shared with the new elders as we were going through the elder training was 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 to the end of the, end of the chapter. But I, I just want to look at a, a, a couple of verses here. I don't, I don't want to read the whole, the whole chapter. The whole, chap, the whole 
from 20 to the end of the chapter is very powerful. But listen to how he, he begins in verses 20 through 22. He says, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of, and, of, and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord with, from a pure heart. Self-examination is supposed to lead to adjustment, adjustment. And then, it's, then when you add a third element, accountability, leadership truly becomes spiritual. One of the primary reasons for a plurality of pastors or elders within a congregation is related to the need for accountability. Notice Paul's words to the elders in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, he wrote this. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Being an elder is not about you getting away with your sin. Self-examination, adjustment, and accountability are so important in the leader's life because outward virtue should not be the only virtue that people see. I'm not against outward virtue. It's a good thing. It's a net, we, ought, we ought to look righteous. <laughs> we ought to look righteous, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But looking righteous should be tied to being righteous. This is also why the elder's family is such a good barometer, albeit not the only barometer of a man's true life. Look at his wife and his children. Examine the relationship and the respect. What do you see? No wonder Paul told Timothy he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Paul moves on to the next point. Not only, not only does he have a commitment to personal holiness, he also has a commitment to shepherding the flock of God. Notice what the, the rest of verse 28 says. And for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Man, there are so many important points, so I could, I could preach two sermons on this verse alone. Notice, notice with me that that the elders of any particular local body must realize that they are overseers. Did, did you see that? Look what the text says. Don't look at me, look at the text. Overseers. The word overseer is the Greek word episkopos. Episkopos. That's the Greek word from, from which we get bishop. So an elder is a bishop. It's the same thing. Paul said to the elders, God made you overseers. God made you bishops. The elders are the bishops. This was a title. Episcopos was a title 
in the Greek, in the Greek world of either a state or a local government official who had various public responsibilities and duties focused upon ruling over, watching, and caring for the public to whom they were assigned. This person would, would have various responsibilities ranging from the judicial, the, the fiscal, and administrative. Therefore, the word itself would speak to the idea of authority, responsibility, and leadership. Therefore, just as the elders were to devote and occupy themselves with their own personal holiness, so too with the same care and effort they would occupy themselves with caring for the congregation. Not only do they care about themselves, but they also care about the sheep. Overseer speaks of the office which they hold in the church. That's the office that they hold. The office is held not based on their own taking of the office, but rather they are placed in that position by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made them overseers. They didn't make themselves. How did the Holy Spirit place them in that position? He gave them the gift of teaching. He gave them the internal righteous desire for the office. He enabled them to meet the qualifications for the office. And other spiritual leaders validated those three realities in their life. In other words, these four things came together to make up the call of the elder's life to ministry. While overseer identifies the office, Paul's next phrase identified their actions in that office. What does an overseer do? To shepherd the church of God. To shepherd the church of God. This word shepherd here is the Greek verb related to the noun pastor in Ephesians 4.11. In other words, the elders who hold the office of overseers have been given the responsibility by the Holy Spirit to pastor the church of God. The elder is the overseer, is the pastor. It's, those three words are interchangeable. The, the offices are interchangeable. It, it, it's all the same person or same persons. Understanding this biblical description of church leadership helps us to place biblical New Testament leadership in the right context. Again, we don't believe that a bishop is a super pastor. You know, a pastor on steroids. I mean, people use this term in order to deceive the people of God. They want you to give them higher props. The Bible says all the same. <laughs> the elder is the, is the bishop. The bishop is the pastor. They're all interchangeable. This helps us to as I said, this helps us to place biblical New Testament leadership in the right context. First off, we must understand, notice that the flock that's being shepherded does not belong to the overseers. Whose flock is it? The church of God. Church of God. <laughs> it's God's church. Amen. It's God's flock. Right. Flock doesn't belong to the elders of this church. We don't own this church. It's God's church. That's what Paul says here. Amen. It's God's flock, Amen. particularly Jesus Christ's flock. 
He is therefore the shepherd, as clearly taught in John 10, 1 through 30. As the shepherd of the flock, Jesus has, has determined, based on his own will, to divide his flock into smaller flocks known as local churches. Understand, Jesus is over one flock. It's one flock. He, he divides his one flock into smaller sub-flocks, but it's all one flock. Those smaller sub-flocks are called local churches. These smaller flocks, sub-flocks, are allotted. They're allotted to the care of human shepherds, under-shepherds, raised up by the Holy Spirit and accountable to the chief shepherd. Keep your finger. Turn to 1 Peter. I want you to see this. First, I'm not making this stuff up. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Look what this text says. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The text says, Therefore I exert the elders among you as your fellow elder, and witness of the, of the sufferings of Christ, and a partake also of the glory that is to be re revealed. Verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor, let, nor yet as lording it over those, watch this, allotted, allotted, allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice, notice, Notice in that text, both the fact that the local flocks have been allotted to the charge of human shepherds, and also that they are accountable to not just the shepherd, but to Christ the chief shepherd, the chief shepherd. This indicates that the elders are simply under shepherds. That's all we are. We're under shepherds. Ministering on behalf of the chief shepherd. Amen. As an elder of this church, do you view yourself that way? Just, just the under shepherd. That's all I am. Chief shepherd is Jesus. Amen. He's the one in charge. I'm just trying to implement what he said to implement. I'm just simply trying to put in place what, what he told me to put in place in his word. Now, let me make a very important point here. Has anyone ever seen a flock of sheep shepherding themselves? Has anybody ever seen a flock of sheep shepherding themselves? Flocks do not shepherd themselves. Rather, it is the shepherd's task, just as in the ancient world, to watch for enemies trying to attack the sheep, to defend the sheep from attackers, to heal the wounded and sick sheep, to find and save lost and trapped sheep, and to oversee all matters relative to that flock. And what, what, what am I saying? That congregational rule is insufficient biblically. Flocks don't shepherd themselves. 
Congregational rule advocates that a flock lead itself and ignores the clearly taught principles of representative leadership that saturate the Bible. Listen to the words of Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21, sorry, verses 12 and, and 13. It says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That's your obligation as a as a sheep in Jesus' flock. No wonder Paul began by discussing the elders first watching over himself. How are, you going to be how are you going to be in charge of people and can't be in charge of yourself? You've got to be in charge of yourself first. Do you know we got pastors in this city that are sleeping around with people in their own church? I mean, the stories I hear amongst pastors is insane. How does that happen? How do you have a man in a pulpit who's, who's sleeping around with people in his church, sleeping around, period? It don't matter that they're in his church at all. It don't make any sense. How can that person pastor a church? They don't have control of themselves. How are you going to give them charge over someone else? Man, we have some mixed up churches in this city. Sad. Sad the people they make pastors nowadays. Sad. Why is it that Christ's instructions regarding the government of the church cannot be ignored? Why are the standards of leadership so high? Why is accountability so important? Because Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. He purchased the church with his own blood. He died for the church. He shed his blood for believers. <laughs> How in the world can you treat the church any old way? It doesn't make sense. Why is it that the church submits itself to biblical eldership? Because it realizes that it does not have the right to determine how it operates because God acquired the church. God bought the church. He's, he bought it with his own blood. And it's his right to allot it, to allot it as he chooses. If he bought it, if he purchased it, he can allot it. Because he owns it. Paul's third point. The elders must also have a commitment to guard the flock. Now Paul has already intimated this in, in the previous verse. 
But now he, he now it's it's become it's be, it becomes even more emphatic in verses 29 through 31. 29 says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul was well aware of, the, of, the, of, of false teachers following on the heels of his ministry. I mean, Paul had dealt with this his whole life. Paul would go to a city, he'd preach, then the Judaizers would come in later and try to pervert the church. So, so, so Paul knew that. Look, I, 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 he said, look, I'm not naive. I know what's awaiting you. Whenever there is truth being taught and preached, Satan raises up resistance to the truth. Paul wasn't surprised at that. But not only will Satan attempt to infiltrate the church from, from false teachers from the outside, he will also attempt to infiltrate them from the inside. Oh my gosh. You mean, is it an inside thing he's doing too? Look at verse 20. And from among your own selves, uh-oh, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. <laughs> I heard a, I heard a I heard a local pastor on YouTube being interviewed and he tried to argue that, that the church to reach the new generation ought to be growing and selling cannabis so they can attract new, the new younger generation of the church. Really? Really? That's what the church should be doing? That's what you come up from reading the Bible? <laughs> then he had the gall to say that, well, you know what? You really can't really teach holiness to this next generation because they, they used to sleeping around. So you, just can't, you can't tell them, come up trying to, you know, give them the old type of gospel. You got you to kind of, kind of spruce, it, spruce it up to some new stuff. Really? That's what the Bible tells you to do? That's a wolf, church. <laughs> That's a wolf. That's somebody dressed up like sheep, but they're really a wolf underneath the dressing. And their goal is to take you out. Be careful, be careful, be careful. From among your own selves, from within the church will arise individuals speaking perverse, perverted things. And you know what? They're going to draw away people. People love to hear you're okay. <laughs> you're okay. No, you're not okay. <laughs> Repent and believe on Jesus. You're not okay. In fact, you're going to hell because of who you are. Right. Repent and turn to Jesus. That's what needs to happen. Amen. Apparently, Paul's warning came true because when he wrote to Timothy, who ministered in Ephesus, in 1 Timothy, he has to warn him, I sent you there to silence certain people who were teaching the wrong thing. So Paul was right. 
People did creep in. People did come in to the church and began to teach some perverse things. And Paul has to send Timothy to clean house. It's, it's Jesus' church after all. This idea of savage wolves corresponds to Jesus' description of false teachers in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 23. It, it, it graphically paints the picture of the horrific nature of false teaching and the goal of the false teachers. What is the goal of the false teacher? The false teacher wants to draw away the sheep so that they might consume them for their own... What does a wolf want to do? Eat? What does a wolf eat? Sheep? It wants, it wants to snack on the sheep. <laughs> Draw them away so, they might, so that they might consume them for their own appetites, church. H have you ever wondered why... Appetite and appetite is so often used in the context of false teaching. Second Peter 2, 3. Second Peter 2, 14 through 15. Jude 1, 16. Why does, why does appetite appear in the context of false teaching? Because these people are wolves. And wolves want to eat. And wolves want to eat sheep. And these appetites can be more than just money. It might be using the church to pump up their egos, to power trip, or as a cover for their own lack of spirituality. Whatever their reason, the flock's well-being under God is not their desire, but rather their own selfishness and pride. So what does Paul do? He warns them, verse 31. Look at the warning. Look at the warning. Therefore, do what? Elders, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul said, be alert. What does the word alert mean? In the Greek, it literally meant to be awake. Wake up, elders. That's what he said. Be alert. Snap out of it. Get some sponge sauce. Get a, get a clear mind. Wake up, wake up, wake up. This word was used for the idea of watchfulness and vigilance. The only way for the elders of a local church to effectively guard that local assembly from the dangers from, from without and the dangers from within is to be constantly watchful and vigilant over the instruction taking place in the church. And this is one of the major functions of our elder board. Not only do the elders of this church instruct, but they oversee the instruction that takes place throughout all the ministries, whether the men's ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry, prison ministry, home Bible studies, whatever. The elders oversee all of those things. They must be watchful over themselves and watchful over others doing the instruction. What does that mean for them? It means that they must be conversant with sound doctrine and aware of errors and to guard against those errors. Notice Paul's words to Titus regarding elders or overseers. This is what he says, that these men were to be those who hold, this is what he says, 
hold fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Why? That he, the elder, may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Let's just be honest. Every sermon is not going to make you walk out skipping from this church. Right? Every sermon is not going to be that way. Sometimes you're going to be sullen and and your head's going to be hanging low because it was convicting. Believe me, I've been there. If all you want to, to do is to be patted on the back, this is the wrong church. Because the Bible doesn't just pat you on the back. It does that, but it also, what? Kicks you in the behind, too. Amen. It exhorts and admonishes. It exhorts and admonishes. It's both of those things. Paul said that we're the most exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict Let me keep going. Number four, a commitment to God and his word. Verse 32, a commitment to God and his word. (laughs) Paul says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Not only must they be alert, but they must further be completely dependent upon God and his word. First, he commends them to God. The elders of Ephesus can face their daunting task confidently in spite of its difficulties and in spite of the prospect of not not seeing or apparently hearing from Paul again. Why? Because although Paul may be leaving them, they would always be in the care of God. That's comforting. The word Commend meant to place something before something else or to put it beside it. It can be used as it is here to refer to the idea of of entrusting someone to, to someone else. As they execute their task God's way, the elders can be sure that God will safeguard them in the midst of this strenuous and exhausting task. This is this is Pastor Appreciation Month. We we appreciate our elders during this month. That's what we Christianity's kind of come up with. <laughs> and the elders are thankful. I know I'm thankful. Pastor Perkins told me he, he was thankful even. <laughs> but let me say this. Being an elder is a difficult task. Because you're always wrong. Always. For every person that says you're right, somebody's somebody saying you're wrong. I mean, you can be sure as a leader, you are always in the wrong with somebody. You can't please everybody. Everybody doesn't want to embrace you. Some people want to get, get you away from them as quick as possible. It's a difficult job. It's a difficult task. Paul says, I commend you to God. Don't base what you do as an elder based upon whether you're embraced by the people of the church. Amen. 
realize that God is embracing you as you do your task. Paul commends them to God, not the sheep. He commends them to God. Thank you. Thank you. What a word of comfort. But he also entrusts them, look at this, to the word of his grace. <laughs> I like that. Here too, the elder is given his ever-present companion, his Bible. <laughs> they are commended not just to God, but God's word. Notice how Paul described what the word was able to do. This is astounding, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The, the, the word both provides you with everything necessary to live in this life prior to glorification, build you up, that is edify you, and it also will give you confidence of assurance of future promises, the inheritance from God. It's the whole package. It, it, it builds you up in the now, right now. It builds you up, but also gives you a vision for your future inheritance. The whole package is found in God's Word. What is the point for the elders of Ephesus? This word instructs them in righteousness. It, it admonishes them regarding their sin. It counsels them on which direction to turn. It gives them hope when they are discouraged, strength when they feel that they can't go on, wisdom as to when to keep their mouth shut, and encouragement as to when to open up their mouth. That, 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 God's primary tool of leading and guiding the elders into his divine will is his word. <laughs> elders, the word is your constant rudder on which you are dependent. Some pastors give their people what they have found to be true or lessons they have learned or what others have taught them. All I have for you, Berean, is the word of God. Amen. All these elders have for you is the word of God. Amen. Lessons we've learned, those are dangerous. <laughs> Who did you learn them from? Things you found to be true, really? You had to find it for it to be true? It's the word. It's the word. One pastor told me he was in a counseling session with a couple and they were struggling with their marriage. It wasn't Pastor Perkins. Uh, they were struggling with their marriage and so he was counseling them and he said, you know what? Because they were not following through and doing what they, he said, all I have for you is the Bible. What else can I give you? This is what the Bible says. You either do what the Bible says or you don't do it, but I got no other options. <laughs> there, is, there, isn't, there, isn't, there isn't a second thing I can give you that's not the Bible that can help you. The only thing that can help you is God's word. That's all I have for you. As Paul said, it's all he had for the people of Ephesus. Notice how Paul pushes the elders of Ephesus away from himself. He pushes them away from, him, from himself and towards God and his word. You see, Paul would not always be around, but God and his word 
abides forever. <laughs> Thank you. F.F. Bruce makes a powerful statement he, he, uh, when, he, when he describes this verse, and he says, and I quote, in due course, Paul with all the apostled, apostles passed from earthly life, but the teaching with the, which they left behind to be guarded by their successors as a sacred deposit preserved not only their memory, but eventually in the New Testament scriptures remains to this day as the word of God's grace. And those who are most truly in the apostolic succession, sorry, and, and, and those who are most truly in the apostolic succession who receive this teaching along with the rest of the Holy Writ as their rule of faith and life, end quote. Whatever Bruce is, is saying, when, the apostles, they faded off the scene. But what was left, what they left us, this abides forever. And the elders will always have this to go back to. This is where they get encouragement. This is where they get uplifted. This is where they get challenged to go forward. Even when things get difficult, they can always turn to the word of God and be encouraged. I encourage you elders to turn to God's word. In the difficulties of life, When things happen that are, are out of your control, you always have the Word of God that you can turn to. And then his final point is a commitment to selflessness. <clears throat> Verse 33 through 35. Paul concluded his comments to the Ephesian elders by returning again to his example. Paul made a personal decision in ministering to the church of Ephesus to do something he didn't always do. Paul didn't take any support from the church. That was his decision. He, he had a right to be supported. 1 Corinthians 9 makes that, 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 that clear. The church was obligated to, to support him. That was obvious from 1 Corinthians 9 as well. And, and although Paul oftentimes took support from other churches so he could minister, he didn't hear. And he tells them in verses 33 through 35 why he did that. In verses 33 through 35, it says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in, in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. What's Paul's point here? He's calling these elders to be selfless. To be selfless. 
They must focus on the needs of others. There will be some long nights and some difficult sacrifices that you will make in leadership. There's things that you will do to benefit others and not yourself. The elder must be willing and eager to make those sacrifices. Just as Paul did. So here we have the conclusion of Paul's charge to the elders. He's told them that they must be committed to personal holiness before God. He's told them that they must shepherd the flock of God under their care. He's told them that they must guard the flock from external and internal dangers to their relationship with God and the study of God's word. He's told them they must keep themselves free from self-centeredness. If they do these things and develop those principles of ministry that Paul illustrated here, then they'll surely be good elders. And I'm sure our elders will do the same. Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for these men that you have brought forward to serve our fellowship. We're thankful for them. We pray to God that you would use them to accomplish your will. We also lift up to you at this time the flock. We know that they have challenges as well. We pray, Lord God, that you would meet their every need through these men. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would remember this is your church, not ours.